This is We Are Netflix, Netflix employees talking about work and life at Netflix. You're going to see so much diverse content that's watched by people all over the world. You're going to see really interesting different types of shows. It's not a one-size-fits-all, like, oh, they're all animated sitcoms. And you're going to see a lot of different stuff that really would have no other outlet out there in the industry. It'll be one of the reasons you go to Netflix. It's a great time for animation here at Netflix. We launched our first original animated series, BoJack Horseman, in 2014. And since then, we've released adult animated titles like Big Mouth and Disenchantment, as well as animated titles for the whole family, like Green Eggs and Ham, Boss Baby, and just recently, Klaus. But we're only just getting started. Now, we're expanding our slate and building our own animation studio in Los Angeles. We're working with some of the best animation talent all over the world and launching new shows and films for fans of all ages around the globe. Hi, I'm Lyle Troxell. I wanted to learn more about this growing part of our business, so I recently visited our L.A. office to talk to some of the amazing people leading our animation initiative. We're going to devote two episodes of the We Are Netflix podcast to those conversations. Today, in part one of our two-part animation series, we'll hear from Melissa Cobb, head of original animation, and Mike Moon, head of adult animation. Melissa and Mike are what we call creative executives. They oversee the teams who take pitches from creators, decide if we should greenlight their projects, and help see the projects through to completion. I started by asking Melissa how she first got into animation. I'd been doing live-action films at Disney for a while and ended up over at Fox working with Chris Melodondry, who now runs Illumination. We were doing family films at Fox, live-action primarily, and then we started to do animated films. And I think that's when I really had a chance to be kind of hands-on in the process, and I just fell in love with it. I think what's really different about the animation process when you're an executive or when you're a producer is that you're involved in the art of creating the stories in a very different way. And so I love the chance to really dig in and and work and inspire and help support artists. Mike, what about you? I started in the business when I was 18. Uh, I was going to CalArts in the late 80s at a time when the industry kind of didn't exist as we knew it. And I was fortunate enough that first year to start working on The Simpsons in the very, very early days uh, of what now has been a show that's been on the air for 30 years. While at CalArts? Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. Started working on that and then uh, was fortunate enough to go to be a part of the early Warner Brothers days when they were doing Tiny Toons, Animaniacs, all of those shows. And so you I don't have up, a professional life without animation. No. That's you. I mean, it's it's all I've known for the last 30 years. And I worked for several years as an artist and then sort of fell into this very strange situation when at Disney years ago, they asked me to try out uh, the job as an executive. And that sort of took my career in kind of a different path. And mm-hmm. it's been great. What are both your favorite adult animated series? Of all time? Yeah. I mean... You know, I I think what Simpsons has done has been sort of incredible. I think South Park is incredible. I think Beavis and Butthead is incredible. I think Rick and Morty is incredible. I think a lot of the shows that we have are incredible. What are you happy about with what we're doing right now? Um, I mean, we're happy about all of them for so many different reasons. I mean, you personally, what are you loving? Uh, Personally, I'm loving the diversity of what we're building in terms of the slate. You know, if if you think of several years back, we sort of started with BoJack Horseman and now we've sort of built these incredible first five shows that are on the slate that are really, really different from one to another. And if you look at the years to come, 
you're going to see just so much more variety, so much more different tone, so many different types of explorations of what adult animation could be. Of course, you're, both of your day-to-day of what you're dealing with and talking about and engaging with is content we won't see for at least a year, right? For years. For years. years. And that must be kind of hard, right? It's a, You get used to the rhythm of it, I think. Yeah. You know, it's a couple years for a series three to four years for a feature film. And yeah. so you would think everyone's just sort of lazing around and not having anything to do. But no, you're kind of in some type of emergency mode the whole time. Always. Everybody's working freaking hard. Right? Yeah. So it's it's intense years. Um, but you, you take the little wins along the way. You see a beautiful, um, you know, render of something. You see a joke really land. Like those little wins along the way are what I think keep you going. Are there kind of, there are dailies in animation that you see that kind of feel? Sure. See, But you're seeing it at so many different stages along the way. I mean, I've always thought that animation development is a lot more is is a lot more similar to like theater development Mm -hmm. than even traditional live action film or TV. Because you're often like you're putting stuff up, you're tearing it down, you're putting stuff, you're constantly workshopping stuff. Very much like theater. Yeah. 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 yeah, and you're workshopping it with an audience often to sort of see how something plays. Is it working? Is it not working? Um, which is an incredible way to make a film because you get to make it before you make it, which is super smart. And it's that nonlinear process that I think is just totally intoxicating, mm-hmm. you know. Um, Melissa and Mike mentioned BoJack Horseman, which, of course, are famously our first animated mm-hmm. piece. Um, what, what did animation look like when BoJack started up, and how have we changed? And, and when was it that we started Bo, BoJack? You know, it was before my time, I oh, guess, okay. before yeah. Mike's time I, as well, right? We started BoJack about five years ago. Was Pop, that done in-house? Or probably was it? even. It was done with an outside studio named Shadow Machine, who's producing in Tornante. The, uh, at that time, what the slate looked like on service was a lot of licensed content. Mm-hmm. So that was a really big moment in sort of... They had all these big titles, you know, that were sort of second run, but to sort of branch out and create like what is a Netflix adult animated show? Right. You know, so license basically one. means someone else creates it and we sure. get the rights for it in, in certain regions. Yeah. 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 And it can be a Netflix original as well. So at a similar time, Netflix made a big overall deal with DreamWorks Animation to do a bunch of television series based on their existing uh, movies. And so that's been a really incredible relationship that's gone on for the last five years. Like or How to so Train Your Dragons series? Yeah. Like How to Train Your Dragons and Boss Baby and. You know, there's um, a lot of really fun shows like Spirit. We have a, a lot of shows from them. And that was yeah. really how we got our feet wet in the animation business as well, is working with great partners to um, really help build out the, the shows for our audience. And those are co-branded with DreamWorks, which is nice. And, of course, all of their yeah. creative work with us. Describe to me how we've shifted and we're doing our own studio. Also, like, what does it now look like? So we'll always have um, shows that come from a lot of different sources, right? So we have our ongoing relationship with DreamWorks. We've announced a couple of smaller projects, um, feature projects, actually, that we're doing with Nickelodeon. Um, We work with creators and studios all over the world that bring shows to us. And then we've also started to build our own animation studio here in L.A. to create sort of a a base for creators in L.A. who want to come work with us, whether they're in feature films or uh, series, whether that's adult series, preschool school series, or kids series. It's a real kind of melting pot of different voices and different creators from all over who have come together to make their shows for us. Why are we doing that? 
Um, we really felt like what we were trying to pursue in the animation space was unique and there was an opportunity to bring people into the fold um, and to work with them more directly in creating shows that we felt really suited the Netflix audience mm-hmm. um, and to work with creators in a way that is very specific to how Netflix has sort of built their creator relationship since the very beginning with shows like House of Cards, which is to be very creator-friendly and very creator-driven. And that's allowed um, some fantastic shows to be made. And we thought, well, what if we apply that to animation? Right. So you're saying when creative driven, you find some people that have a good idea and we want to work with them. And we basically do as much as we can for them to do the creative work they want to do. That's the goal. You want to give them space to create, space to incubate, space to be inspired by their other peers. And it's just it's just such a a privilege to be able to have that opportunity Mm in-house as opposed to relying to all of our great partners. So what are we doing in-house for these originals in our animation studio versus out, out of house? Is everything done inside inside our house or studio? Uh, not all of our shows? Yeah. No, no. We're still getting shows from lots of different creators. No, I mean the so. shows that we are creating oh. as our, our own shows, right? Yeah, for our shows that we're doing in-house, we basically do what's called the front end of the process in-house, which is the storyboarding, the writing, the design, the editorial, the recordings, all the sort of the roadmap for the the show or the movie. Mm-hmm. And then the shot production is generally done with an outside partner who is really working closely with our team here to then execute on that vision. Okay. So the and, animators are going to be out of house. Yeah. And that that's pretty consistent with how most of our industry works. Why? You know? There's a lot of reasons. Uh, <laughs> Let's there's... talk about the history of animation. No, we don't have to go deep into that. <laughs> no, it's interesting. We had this uh, talking to James Baxter, who's our head of animation working at the studio. Who's He's a legend. A, I'll yeah. be speaking with him later today, and our next episode <laughs> of animation will be Oh, fantastic. Yeah, okay, so. you can you can hear more from him. Yeah. Um, but he was talking about how in, it was all done in-house. All TV animation was done you know, from the beginning through animation in-house until about the 70s, when it was really economic pressure yeah. that caused a change in the, the kind of the workflow so yeah. that more of the animation would be done um, overseas where costs were, were less. Um, I, I happen to have friends that are animators and uh, nice. worked on multiple films, Dream, uh, DreamWorks films and such, and uh, I think How You Train, uh, yeah, How to Train Dragon, so on. So close friends. And one of the things I hear from animators is that sometimes animators are not treated very well. And there's we I do you know a podcast all about how we treat people and sure. how, we, how well we engage with people and how much trust we have. And I hear we're outsourcing, and I'm a little concerned about that. How are we making sure that the people that are working on our films are being treated well? I think one of the things that we do when we make our original um, sort of outreach to the studios is that we talk to them about what we consider to be an appropriate Netflix way of treating people. Honestly, mm-hmm. we have those conversations and we pick really carefully what partner studios we're working with. And so we'll we'll take our creator, we'll allow them to kind of meet with three or four different studios, allow them to choose the one that they think would be the best creative match for what they're doing. And then we'll really work closely with that studio. So it's not a sort of a black box that we send things into and don't really know what's happening there. We're pretty engaged with those studios on an ongoing basis. Um, We don't have total oversight of how each company operates, but we do try to work with companies that have a great reputation, not only for the work that they do, but for how they approach it and how they treat their staff. And to be clear, it's not that my friends that are animators, you know, are treated badly, but it's that, you know, you you work as a contractor for a film and for a period of time. When that film is done, you've got to find another job, right? Yeah. So it's that kind of contractual. You're living like, yeah, it's like a, it's like a a nomadic lifestyle. Yes. You know, you're traveling from, but, but even now, I mean, with with so much work in the business, I think that's really become less and less. Well, because it used to be a lot of closed doors. And if you left, you were sort of like, oh, I can't get into any of these stores because mm-hmm. there are all these It was musical shops. chairs. Yeah. yeah. But now I think it, 
for a lot of reasons. There's a lot more kind of open door, so people are going to follow a project they like, working on a project, coming and going. It's more fluid. But yeah. it's definitely you're, you have a longer versus live action production if you're a, an actor or a cameraman or a wardrobe person. Those are very short-term gigs, um, you know, by contrast. So Right, yeah. It's different when you work on something for three years. It's, yeah. yeah. And there's something, there's something just from historical context. There's something interesting that also happened in the 90s. I guess it would be sort of post Little Mermaid or like animation directors – were nameless and faceless prior mm. to that. I mean, the people who knew, knew, but, and then suddenly with the big, huge business of some of those early film, some of those films uh, in the sort of renaissance of feature animation in the nineties, all of those directors became like celebrities. You know, it's almost like what we've seen happen with celebrity chefs mm -hmm. and, and just kind of the whole bar was changed. And, and you had creators like Matt Groening and Craig McCracken, and Gendy Tartakovsky on the TV side or Steve Hillenberg, like, these people became um, much closer aligned with like their live action counterparts. Mm -hmm. And I think that just sort of changed the whole perspective on the business. Somewhat. Yeah. All right. What kind of content do we want to create at Netflix? And do we have like a house brand? We have a, a style that we're looking for. So we're creating content across a lot of different content types. So we have preschool shows, we have kids shows, we have family oriented TV shows, we have feature films and Mike's adult team, shows. Yeah, yeah, adult shows. And then we're doing a ton of anime out of our Tokyo office. So um, it's a huge range. It would be impossible to, to stick that inside a brand box. Mm -hmm. Thank <laughs> well, God. I don't know what Thank it would look God. like. <laughs> I mean, part of, part of the joy for everyone we're working with here is just there is really no brand box and sort of we're, we're, we're chasing the best execution from all of our different creators and all of our respective sort of buckets, if you will. Traditionally, though, an animation house, it's even a small one, it's going to release maybe one film. Um, they have a name, and then that name is associated with that, that style, right? Mm -hmm. And you can even do that with Disney or DreamWorks or wherever sure. you want to do that. There is definitely a style that comes out or, you know, you know what it's going to be like. That's not like that for us, right? If it, Netflix animation does not mean a single thing. No, it's more a creator thing, like you were saying about Matt Groening. Like, you know what his style is. You know if yeah. that's his work. You can tell he has his own sort of brand. Um, and I think we think of our creators that way. So Glenn Keane, who was at Disney for 38 years, is here directing a movie now. He's not directing a Disney movie. He's not directing a Netflix movie. He's directing a Get Glenn Keane movie. And that's a really cool idea that everybody can really create their own identity within the greater Netflix structure. Yeah. And our audience can start to, to really appreciate the, the creator-driven projects. And the, the continuity of the brand really comes in how you look at these creators. You know, So the brand becomes a collection of like the greatest minds, whether they're seasoned pros or totally brand new voices. You know, that's really what the brand becomes. And we encourage creators to work that way, to really think about what is what is the tone and the style of what you're trying to do? What is unique to you? What are you bringing to this project? Um, rather than sort of overseeing it with a kind of a heavy hand of um, a brand perspective. So what is the role that you both have or your whole organization has in working with these creatives to make sure that they do what they want to envision. What it's they envision it, it's a lot of different things. I mean, it's, it's, uh, you're the champion for them. You're taking the body blows for them. You're the first line of defense. You're a strategic partner. Um, so do you, you get really involved in the productions that you're kind of helping with? Very much so. How, how involved are you? Um, I mean, it's hard to quantify, uh, but very involved. I mean, we're, we've sort of talk weekly with all of our creators across all of our different shows. Um, we help them problem solve. We challenge them. 
We push back when we think that that uh, there might be a different solution. Um, we also support them vigorously. And I think you could probably look across all of our slates, and I think all of our creators are probably having the best working experience they've had. Now that doesn't mean exciting. that doesn't mean that it's hands off. That doesn't mean that it's just let because because honestly, the 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 best of those relationships is one where there is some push and pull, and you always always want to be sort of helping them find creative excellence. Mm-hmm. But you need to take at least for me, you need to take the. Um, you know, I think there's a there's a problem in other places sometimes where authorship becomes in question. You know, and and that is not how we run development here. Um, and so it's really just about support and helping people make the best shows of their lives. Yeah, I think the one of the distinctions is, and the reason it might feel different for creators is that we're really, in the best case, helping them and supporting them to make the show that they want to make, not the show that we want to sure. make. And I think that's the distinction, right? Yeah, so we're it. really digging in hard to say, like, is this is this really the best version of this idea that you have? Why do you both decide to come here? I mean, you're both doing this kind of work in other places where you actually probably have a little bit more hands-on in the sense that if we're giving a lot of power and freedom to the creators – um, your job changes a bit. Why, why come here? Why work in this environment for, for both of you? Uh, for me, it just felt like a once in a lifetime opportunity. I mean, I, I had an incredible job that I was coming off of. Where were you? Um, I was actually at Sony. I was the, the creative exec on the Spider-Verse film over at Sony. And I left before the, they finished production because the promise of what we were building here was seemed like once in a lifetime and i knew that there was no way i could pass up the opportunity i love that film by the way thanks for helping on that um yeah so you walked away from that film the birth was difficult but the baby was beautiful yeah so and and just because of what all the things we're talking about just sounded like the right way to do animation yeah yeah that makes sense what about you melissa Yeah, I think it's really similar, which is there's sort of um, the way that studios have been set up for years and years, and there's great things about that. But the idea of having sort of a blank slate to invent the studio of our dreams, I think, was really the enticing thing. The idea that sort of coming here and looking at the whole ecosystem and kind of where we are today with both technology um, and the artistry of animation felt like a really great moment to say, let's see if we can can do something else. I mean, the amount of support um, that we get from Netflix overall for what we're doing is really incredible. Um, and then the the access to just this huge audience. You know, we have now 156 maybe million households across the world about half of those watch animation every month. And so that's a lot of people that you're able to share the work with, which is very exciting. Well, let's talk about global because animation, of course, is completely a global uh, creative process. How are we doing this all over the world? You mentioned Tokyo. I actually went to the Tokyo office and did interviews about our anime process. Oh, we love that team. That team is amazing. (laughs) John's my favorite. Yeah, he's great. So I kind of know in Tokyo, but what about other places of the world? How are we making sure that the animation voice is global? On the adult slate right now, um, there's a lot coming up that hasn't been announced, but we've got two productions, um, uh, three productions out of Europe currently uh, with three totally different types of studios, three totally different types of creators. We've just hired an international executive who is going to spearhead the sourcing from 
other adult animated shows from all over the world. What do you mean spearhead this horsing? I think it sounds like a lingo I don't understand. Uh, well, okay, so so maybe 30%, 40% of our jobs here is taking pitches and seeing people who come through L.A. and they want to, you know, having general meetings, showing their projects. Um, we Figure thought, out who, who we're going to find. Yeah, find yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so for the adult slate – we thought the next step is really opening that up to more international creators who we do get, but you, you're you sort of either limited to those who are specifically coming to L.A. on travel or you're meeting them at festivals or events throughout the world. And we thought, no, we need someone much more. Are they based in our Amsterdam office? Uh, they're going to be based in the in the London office. In the London office. Okay, cool. So make sure that we are more available for those pitches and yeah. around, around the yeah. world. Great. And that, that, that hits not only creators, but studios and vendors and all of that, because we work with so many international partners. And what about on the kids and family side? Well, we already have executives in a number of the regions. We have a great executive in Singapore. We have a couple of executives in the Sao Paulo office. We have three executives now in London um, and two in Amsterdam. And so we really feel like great animated content can come from anywhere in the world. We have um, a show, Klaus, which was just produced in uh, Madrid, Spain, from Sergio Pablos. We it's have... so good. <laughs> I've you, seen, I've seen stills and trailers. It's it is beautiful. It is the most beautifully animated film that I think has been made since. Yeah, it's really quite um, and then we're doing a film called My Father's Dragon with Nora Tuomi at Cartoon Saloon in Ireland. So that's a couple of features that we have coming from international territories. And then we're making series all over the world. Um, we had a preschool series called Mighty Little Beam, which was a really fun physical comedy preschool show featuring a little kid in an Indian village. And we really made it for India, but it's resonated with audiences in literally every country that we're in. It's become a really successful show for us. Yeah, it's delightful. It is. He's cute. Oh, adorable. It's a large investment to do like a full feature film. You said multiple years, even a series, large investment. How do we know we're picking the right pieces? How do we do that? For me personally, it just comes down on betting on the talent. Yeah. You know, I think talent is so much more important than title, you know, because I think an idea is just an idea, but it's really about like storytellers and, and who has a unique point of view and who can capture a tone. I mean, animation is such a non-spontaneous art form that a lot of it comes down to also those directors who manage to manipulate this crazy pipeline to create something that feels completely spontaneous and completely alive. Yeah. And that's that's really the gold standard and it's what we're all chasing, I think. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's all about just betting on the talent. Okay. So... I, I get the betting on the talent, giving a lot of freedom to the creatives. Is there anything else differently that we're doing? And you've been on both sides, Mike. You've been both mm -hmm. sides of the of the you know the exec space and all the producer space and also the creative space. Mm -hmm. What other things are we doing differently? Um, I think one of the things is just the the range of projects that we're making yeah. because yeah, of the not, diversity of yeah. projects. So you know, so we're not locked into a specific budget or a specific style. So we can make a show in stop motion. We can make a show in 2D. We can make a show in CG. We can make a show that's a combination of all of those things. So we're really trying to push the boundaries. And I think that's really interesting for creators, but but really for the audience as well. Yeah. You know, Because we do have such a big audience, a small percentage of our audience can be a rabid audience for a show. And that makes that show really um, a, a big win for us. Every one of these productions is totally bespoke. And it even goes down to how we're setting it up from a production standpoint. And how so? All, all the other studios that I've worked at on the TV side, 
a schedule was a schedule, and you green light a show, and you plug it into the exact same schedule. It's maybe, open in September. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and maybe you make a little tiny tweak here and there. Um, but here, that's not the case. I mean, every one of these shows, in order to be the best for that particular creator, every one of these shows requires a slightly different methodology. It's just how you come at it, and it, it's how you staff. It's how you do breakup rotations. It's how you actually decide to schedule the time for the showrunner. That doesn't um, sound efficient. You know, it becomes highly efficient when you have the collaborators we've got in-house, the the colleagues we've got in-house working for us are absolutely top of market, top of game. Um, they've worked. They're nimble. They're very producerial. I mean, I think it's something you find consistent with a what lot is, of What does very producerial mean? What's that? What does that mean, very producerial? Uh, they're, they're, they, they, they know how to get it done. Uh-huh. They have they have the chops and they have the understanding and they know how to twist and turn through production because production isn't easy and they know how to adapt and they know how to th- how think you, on the fly. How do you find people like that? You know, I think one of the things that's been really interesting because when we started building the animation studio, it was really just some empty space and it wasn't the kind of, you know, well-organized situation that you would find at a studio that's been around longer. Um, there's a bit of a self-selecting thing that happened, which is that people who come who want sort of the comfortable and the safe and the routine really wouldn't be attracted to coming to Netflix. It's the people who have more of an entrepreneurial or pioneering spirit who are like, I want it and I want to be part of this and, you know, I'll, I'll help clean up if I have to. Whatever I need to do, I'll do. And I'm going to dive in because I'm excited about building something. And I think that when you do that, when you sort of tell people, here's, here's what we're doing, we're going to go places people have never gone before in terms of what we're doing in this space, you attract the right people. And those are the kinds of people that we're looking for on an ongoing basis, people who will keep pushing the boundaries of sort of the expected and the norm in terms of not only the creative, but also the process of how we get there. You must hire people. This one of your jobs is hiring execs like this, uh, Melissa. How do, you, how do you assure people that's actually how we do it? Um, I don't think anybody believes us. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because I think a lot of studios will say a similar kind of thing. Sure. Oh, we're creator driven. Sounds very. It sounds fantastic, very nice. right? Well, and we we try really hard, but I think at this point, luckily, we have creators in house, and they can they can talk to each other. So when you hear it from me, it might sound like a sales pitch, <laughs> but when you hear it from a creator that you respect and you have a great relationship, and they say, "No, that really is what's happening. They really are giving me creator freedom. They really are supporting me. I really am making the show that I want." That's that's incredibly meaningful. I I had a friend recently. We were, we were talking about stuff, and and he said, "How come you're not using the term creator driven as you're talking about what you're doing? Why aren't you using the term creator driven?" And I had to think about it, and I'm like, "Oh right, in all of my other jobs, I've always referred to creator driven development because that was in opposition of the way that the particular place worked, and so you had to dis- distinguish what we were doing." as creator driven and now we're in this weird situation where we're truly doing creator driven and there is nothing in opposition of that so it's almost become an irrelevant uh uh moniker because of course we're doing creator driven that's, that's how we operate yeah yeah, yeah yeah i don't know if that makes any sense no it does yeah. it found, it sounds like it, it would it had to be said as like a mantra to try to get what you wanted yeah yeah right? yeah, yeah oh oh yeah, absolutely and i would say with our, for our first handful of creators they came in and probably a month or two in, they had this moment where they were like, wait, you're really doing this, right? And we're like, yeah, we're really doing it. And then they wait a few more months and they're like, there's not another shoe that's going to drop? And we're like, nope, nope, this is how it works. And they kind of take the deep breath and go, okay, this that is could, on me. I got to do great shows. That can be intimidating. <laughs> that can yeah. be kind of a scary experience, sure. I'm assuming. 
Yeah, and that's where the support part comes in, right? We want people to to uh, feel comfortable taking creative risk. This sounds know? like a a big bet for us. I mean, it sounds like we could fall on our face. I mean, it might not be the way to make animation. How do we know it's working? If you've looked across our industry historically, the things that have have become juggernauts were always this. We're oh, always okay. creator driven. I mean, I think there's one or two examples of something that was cooked up in a laboratory by committee that have gone on to have global success. But I think more often than not, you're talking about the filmmaker-driven films or, or creator-driven Can you TV name a shows. studio that operates that way, has always operated that way? I mean... It's like Pixar always been that way? Is that why they're you can, great? You can, you can look at Pixar, you can look at Disney, you can look at Nickelodeon, you can look at Cartoon Network, you can look at all these studios, you can look at DreamWorks. I mean, I think the things that have been gone on to success, it, it doesn't seem like it's even up for debate. Yeah, know? it works. It has worked. Yeah, okay. and I think the other thing that's really great about Netflix is that Netflix um, embraced that from the very beginning on live action shows. And when you see how that kind of works day in and day out on the live action shows and that we're making here, I think it's very reassuring. Yeah, you know, um, because at the end of the day, you know, with the volume of shows that we're making and for the diversity of the audience that we're programming to, if everything goes through a single brain to filter the creative, we're just going to have um, it's just not going to be diverse enough to meet the audience needs. Yeah. Some of these pieces that you're, we're launching are seasoned pros that have mm-hmm. a track record, but some yeah. are like up and coming. We haven't seen work from them. Absolutely. Maybe a small piece. How do you know? I mean, when you get a seasoned person, you're like, yeah, if we give them freedom, they're going to get another show like sure. the one they've done. But for the up and coming person, how do we know they're going to be a good fit? So, you know, it goes back to the the voice of the creator and, and you find someone who has the inspiration and, and has the goods. But what you need to do is you have to insert yourself differently and you have to create an environment where they can't fail um, going through it on their first time. So you have to build up kind of a production safety net just to help them to yeah. succeed. Let's talk about an example of that, something that hopefully is already released that was an up-and-comer. Do we have something like that in your uh, space? Really, the ones we would be talking about now are, are projects that have not been released yet. Anything that's announced that we can talk about sure. as an example? Uh, right now, we have an upcomer, Shion Takeuchi, who's doing her first show. Unbelievably talented animator and writer. She was a superstar from the first time we saw her work at, at CalArts years ago. Um, and it's her first show. And uh, shows are really difficult. And And we were so bullish on her show that we sort of ordered a very large amount of episodes right out of the gates. What and did she's she doing show great. you? What she's you doing show, incredible. What did she show you at in her career, or short career, if you will, like at, at sure. uh, um, well, CalArts and stuff that showed you, oh, this is something special? Well, going back to her senior film at CalArts, it was, it was a lightning bolt. You know, everyone in the room saw it and, and, and thought it was undeniable what talent she had. She was quickly What's, what's her name again? Shion Takeuchi. Thank you. Shion. She's amazing. And what's, so, the, what's the piece she's working on for us? Though? She's created a show called Inside Job for Us, which is a workplace comedy set against the world of conspiracy theories. Um, and it's awesome. And it's going to be incredible. I mean, she, she went to Pixar and did the story internship there. She worked on a few of the Pixar films. She came back to LA. She worked on regular shows. She worked on Gravity Falls. She was a writer on Disenchantment for us, but it was her time, you know? And so really with, with her being a first time showrunner, it's all about sort of surrounding her with, with bodies who, uh, who can help. And, uh, she's doing great. She's doing incredible. The creative is unbelievable on the show. All right. 
Good. How about in the kids and family space? Do you have up and comers that you yeah, investing in? Quite a lot. I think one of the things we're really looking to do is to expand the diversity of the creators in the kids and family space. I think um, there's very few women traditionally uh, in the feature film space, um, and uh, the number of creators in the series space is actually much more heavily male. And so we're mm, looking at diversity. So we're really taking um, some creators that we believe are sort of in the up, up and coming creators and giving them their chance to start making a show. So we have a woman, Elizabeth Ito, who is doing her first show for us. Um, it's called City of Ghosts. It's an incredible, beautiful story about kids who talk to the ghosts of the people in the town that they live in mm-hmm. and set in different parts of LA. And it really kind of deals with gentrification in a really interesting way. And just incredibly. Because these ghosts have lived in the same area for a long yeah, time. Yeah, and so, so you're sort of, they're sort of, un, they're sort of learning a little about about the history of the areas that they work in and solving these kind of little sort of small uh, crimes in their neighborhood. Uh-huh. Um, so it's really charming and fun and has a beautiful, really unique look. Um, and she'd done a short film at a program at Cartoon Network. Um, and based on the strength of that, we knew that she was someone who had a really unique, specific voice. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to support that and help her create her own show. So, when you, when you look at the diversity across, I mean, gender, of course, is one of them. It sounds like you're tackling at some point. There's other there's other uh, diversity issues as well. And how do how do we make sure we're a space that any voice across the planet can actually come and create here? I mean, I think to me, it really starts with the creators. I think what we can do, and we are in a great position to do, is to empower first-time creators and to support them in the way that Mike was just talking about, to really surround them with people to help them succeed. So we don't have to deal with the industry's uh, lack of diversity, because we can start before you've got a lot of industry play. Yeah. Yeah, because I think one of the things that we've noticed, and it's consistently true is when you have a diverse creator, whether it's um, an underrepresented um, country or an underrepresented ethnicity or sexual orientation or anything, they will hire more people that are diverse on their show than other than mm-hmm. a, sort yeah. of a typical creator. And it's we see it 100% of the time. And so for me, the solution is actually at the top. That's pretty convenient. Yes. <laughs> and so that's who you hire. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, you, you look at Jorge Gutierrez, who's doing a miniseries for right now and is just such a leader in the business in so many ways. Um, but his crew is incredibly diverse and we're finding people on his crew and then giving them shows. And so there's this really positive ecosystem when you start to empower people who come from a different perspective. Does that happen uh, regularly? We, we hire somebody that they, they're working on one of our shows and then they, they somehow pitch to us or something. How does that, how does that occur? It's, it's really something that's very interesting. I think a little bit unique to the animation business, which is within a show, you're going to have a lot of people that aren't the showrunner, but are maybe episodic directors or heads of story or other sort of on their path to becoming directors. Mm-hmm. And they can often be overlooked. And so what we're trying to do is be very conscious of who those voices are, who are really strong and have been just under that director show creator kind of level yeah. um, and are ready to step up and, and they'll and, bring us shows. And as Mike, as you were saying, because it's more like a theater creation process where there's a lot of people involved in the creation of it, those people do have an opportunity to shine even if they're not the lead. Oh, absolutely. Right? Yeah, I think this is, I mean, if... If you were a young creator, this is a great place to be because of the number of shows that we're making, but the range of different kinds of shows. And so whereas you might have felt like at a studio, I have this weird idea, they would never like it. This show, the studio, we might like it. So it's worth hearing. You You, you were asking earlier about sort of why build why build the studio? Why why take on all of that internally? And I mean, really, this is the reason because you build beyond just the shows, beyond just the slate. You're building this community that just ignites. One show begets another show, begets another show, and you have this expanding network of 
of creators and talent. It's it's a long play, and uh, that's the most exciting thing about the studio. Yeah, now that we've been doing it for just about two years, a little shy of two years, it's interesting to see that we already that's already happening. So we yeah. already have shows that oh, we've yeah. bought from people working on shows, and that's, uh, that's great. amazing to see that happen. Oh, so good. So good. okay. So what does this look like? In so fi- good. What does Netflix animation look like in five years? On the adult side, you're going to see so much diverse content that's watched by people all over the world. You're going to see really interesting different types of shows. It's not a one-size-fits-all, like, oh, they're all animated sitcoms. And you're going to see a lot of different stuff that really would have no other outlet out there in the industry. It'll be one of the reasons you go to Netflix. Yeah, and I think um, obviously very similar in terms of what we're doing in the kids and family space. I think we'll see a lot of really interesting um, voices come come into animation that look at the business as a way to really tell the stories that they want to tell to this global audience that we have. And we're going to see how the audience responds to that. And my guess is that they're going to respond really well, that we're going to be able to make shows in a lot of different parts of the world that work for a global audience. And that's a really exciting thing. I always think to sort of this next generation of kids – and as they turn on their Netflix and they see a whole bunch of choices of shows, there'll be shows from all over the world and they'll pick and choose the ones that feel right to them. And that will sort of start to inform their sense of the world and their sense of the global community that they live in. Um, and I think we'll also start to see more and more kind of family event viewing on Netflix through our animated series and feature content. Why is that? Well, we're really looking at that space, which is, um, you know, shows that both parents and kids can really enjoy that are appropriate for kids, but really big entertainment for parents so that we can create family viewing moments. We Mm. think that that's a a real opportunity for Netflix to kind of bring everyone together on the couch and whether it's binge watching episodes of Jorge Gutierrez's amazing show Maya and the Three, or it's a big event movie like Chris Williams is doing Jacob and the Seabees, which is a huge seafaring adventure. Um, We're really, we're really pushing kind of the boundaries to make sure that we're, we're, giving them kind of broader entertainment. I also think you'll see us um, stretching on the feature side out of the traditional kids and family space. I think we'll we'll start to do things that are probably more, um, even more sophisticated or more adult um, in that space as well. Um, Animation is... In some, if it's done right, <laughs> it's more expensive than traditional feature films, right? Isn't it? Isn't there a more cost to it because of the duration you work on it? It's like anything. You know, you can make a feature film anywhere from five hundred thousand dollars to five hundred million dollars, and you can probably Same make thing. an animated feature somewhere between five hundred thousand and five hundred million dollars. <laughs> yeah, right. you know, that's the range. So, yeah, so it's all it's a lot of it's really choices. It's okay. about how you want to approach something. And I think that's what's cool. I think um we have seen in the feature business feature studios get kind of locked into only being able to make one size budget mm-hmm. because of just the way that they're set up. We're set up in a way that we can make things across a bunch of different budget ranges. Mm-hmm. And I think that allows us more creative freedom. Besides uh, putting a lot of time and energy into a lot of money into it and making an amazing piece that just blows you away, why is that a good investment for us to do that kind of thing? I mean, we have a service that's a certain amount per month, right? I mean, how do you how do you decide, yeah, it makes sense to make this yeah. amazing thing that I takes think, a long you know, time? We're not deciding that we want to get into animation kind of in the dark. We're seeing uh, the viewing habits of our... People like it. People like it. Yeah. <laughs> Turns people out like it. people love watching Turns animation. People love animation. <laughs> the other thing I think is great about animation is it is often very timeless, meaning you can watch a Simpsons episode from 20 years ago and you can laugh just as hard today. And I think that that's something that we can really do at Netflix that's unique, which is start to build this library of animated content mm-hmm. that people can go back over and watch again and again and again. And why that's is, amazing. Why is animation timeless like that? 
Because you definitely it, see the style. You see that it's lower resolution, whatever, right? There's definitely styles of, of animation over time. You know it's an older piece. But still, there's something still... Yeah, you still watch Pinocchio. You still watch... Yeah, I think it's just inherent to the art form. It just it just ages well the same way it, it travels really well. I just think it's the, some, something about um, that level of stylization is just... Uh, but you're not biased at all. <laughs> no, not at all. Not and great all. stories, you know, great, great story um, should be timeless, yeah. right? Yeah. It often is timeless because you're dealing with themes that are that are more universal, um, which is also why it tends to play really well globally. Okay, so right now we're going to talk to the person who's you know just ending high school, about to go to school, um, wants to do animation. What are they? What what should they be doing right now? Besides counting their blessings, because it's a great time for animation. It is <laughs> what, a great what's, time. What's your recommendations? Um, learn as much as you can about all of the different disciplines that go into the craft and really find out where it best suits to apply yourself. Um, I mean, there's storyboard, there's design, there's, there's color, there's modeling, there's, you know, there's, there's so many different ways in and you can actually find, um, a way to educate yourself on all of those different places anywhere in the world. I think really just uh, do a lot of discovery and a lot of figuring out how best to apply yourself. I think the other thing that's really important is to study storytelling. Take literature classes, take art history classes, understand the history of the world, understand playwriting, be in a play, like do everything you can to really understand the form of storytelling, whether it's visual storytelling or written storytelling, because I believe that every single person that touches an animated movie is a part of that storytelling. And so whether you're lighting a single shot, the way you choose to light that shot helps tell that story. And I think that that's that fundamental understanding of how you tell stories through this medium is the most important thing. Okay. So let's say someone has like done some schooling, they've done some work, they've got, maybe they've worked on a feature or whatever, and they have this thing and they think it's going to work and they want to put it in front of Netflix uh, execs to decide on they're going to you know, they're going to pitch to us. What's the advice for that? Not like structurally how do you do that? You got to get an agent and all that stuff. How do you what do you want to see when someone is talking about their work? Usually um, when somebody comes to pitch a show, what we're looking for is a real passion for the story that they're telling. There's often a personal connection even at the root of that, a sort of a why they want to tell that story. What is it about it, that particular story, that set of characters, that world that really drew them to it? Um, and then having a very strong sense of who the characters are that populate that world, which whether it's a series or a feature is incredibly important. And so we'll really want to understand what is their depth of knowledge and their um, sense of who those characters are. And then in the best of cases, there's some kind of a visual component to that pitch as well that would really speak to what is that world going to look like. And that could be something that they've created themselves, something that they've created with friends or something where they've pulled images, you know, off the internet. Um, But really someone who comes in with a very clear vision and a strong passion, I think is often what we're looking for. And are you looking for groups or individuals? Does it matter? doesn't matter. I think every show is different. We've got some that have uh, huge groups that are manning the creative decisions day to day, and we have other shows that are a single point. So really all depends. But to Melissa's point, I mean, it's really, I think you can strip away a lot of the concept or the elevator pitch or the this or the that. It really comes down to just characters and relationships and creating interesting relationships that you want to watch. It's always what we... So that's what that pitch is for. Yeah. 
What was the mm-hmm. pitch for, imagine something you just recently said yes to, or you said yes to a year ago and you're in the middle of it. Describe a pitch. Like, get us excited. You know, I'll use one that's been announced. Um, the Big Mouth team came in and they talked to us about what they wanted their next show to be. Oh, after Big Mouth? Yeah. Has it been announced? It has been announced. <laughs> and it, it, was, sounds amazing. it was so crystal clear in that moment. They actually had a little little piece of animation, but it was just such a aha moment. Like, yes, of course you need to make that show. Um, so, <laughs> are, you, are we announced what it is, what that little bit is? Yeah. What is it? It's called Human Resources. Oh, okay, it sounds good already. It's a spinoff of Big Mouth and it's incredible. <laughs> cool. I'm looking forward to it. Um, all right. What are you both watching right now? I just finished watching Unbelievable, which is an amazing experience watching that. Um, Not animated. Not animated. No. Are you wondering what I'm watching? No, no. I think it's fine. I think Unbelievable is great. Uh, recommend it? Highly recommend it. Yeah. 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 I was I was nervous to watch it at first. I was Why? afraid it would be too disturbing for me. Yeah. Because um, I'm kind of a wimp about those things. But I actually I thought it was great. Okay, that's good to know because I definitely have that same feeling. Sometimes the show is like, how oh, can I go through this or not? So you feel that way too. Yeah. You did it and you don't regret it. Exactly. All right. I know what I'm watching tonight. Thank you. Watching El Camino, Great British Baking Show, and La Casa de Papel. All at once? All, uh, you know, <laughs> in, in cycles. Yeah, cycles. Those are good ones to mix up, right? Yeah. yeah, it's good. Well, thank you both very much for being on We Are Netflix. Pleasure. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. We Are Netflix is hosted by Lyle Troxell. He's a senior software engineer at Netflix. You can keep up with We Are Netflix on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. To learn more about careers at Netflix, go to jobs.netflix.com.